and welcome back to the podcast. We've got both the Unearth Yourself podcast we're recording, and I will also be recording on my personal podcast called Matrix Breakers. If you haven't checked that out, I will leave, uh, leave the description below the link directly to this episode. Um, and you know, this is just going to be an exciting deal. We have uh, Kristen Ragason. That's right. That's right. Um, and she just wrote a wonderful book. It's called The End of Scarcity. We're going to go over some parts of the book um, and just it, it, this it's absolutely phenomenal. And it's all about our current and past financial system and how we can create solutions for the future. And But before we get into the book, Kristen, can you just share a little bit about yourself? Oh, definitely. Thanks. Yeah, so I've been working professionally as a money manager or wealth management advisor for 30 years. And um, I've also been into uh cryptocurrency in the sense when I saw the Bitcoin paper when it came out in 2009 and I became certified as a digital currency specialist. I have master's degrees and certificates in fintech from MIT and have studied money in London at the University of Cumbria. Um, so it's sort of been my whole life path. Yeah, and then t t share a little bit about where you've worked before and kind of what you're doing now. Yeah, so um, I built my practice at Merrill Lynch, and I worked there for 28 years. And then I just left two years ago. Now I'm working at Raymond James, still managing money. And I researched the topic of money when I found out exactly where, where scarcity comes from, shockingly. And that took about 10 years of research. And the book is the product of it, so it's super exciting. Yeah, and, and just the framework of the book itself, it's a it's a bit of a dialogue mm -hmm. between you and Sam. That's right. And Sam is your you know, yeah, yeah Sam is my Sam is my companion in the book. The book is what's what we call narrative nonfiction. So it's actually nonfiction. It's the journey that took me seven years, but it's condensed into one year for the ease of the book, the fun of the book. And because um, you and Sam go to conferences and different hear different speakers or whatever, and it's it is condensed, right? So that's what I wanted to you know let people know as well. It's a narrative, and and Sam to me, and this is just my own perspective from reading the book is he's he's the audience he's actually you know a, a well-informed audience member of the book itself in That's a right. way and and he's asking questions that almost like you as the reader would have in, in while reading or learning some of the topics that you discuss. That's exactly it. You know, I wrote the book at first, like just a regular money book as to, to really blow people's minds because we need to have this information. And then I looked at it, talked to a couple people. One of my friends who's a successful author said, no, there needs to be more about you and the story. And this needs to be even more accessible to people. And at that point, suddenly it came to me and it came to me, boom, in four months, exactly how the story needed to be written. So Sam is the creative part of the nonfiction. Mm -hmm. um, and he really represents all the people that I met on this journey. He's a composite character. And he just does that he acts as the reader, asking the questions that you're going to have, or sometimes not know to have. And so it really facilitates the interest in the story and then the learning. I, yeah, and it's it's awesome. And then like, if people don't get that how it's written, but it's a narrative nonfiction. So you know, it, and like, it's, it's, um, it's a way to uh, delineate a subject matter that most people don't understand. Uh, so I really appreciated that about the book itself. Oh, it so was glad. almost like a beginner level read. But then as you get towards the end, it's like, it gets intense. And I mean, to follow along, you really have to kind of, you feel like you have to be accredited with some kind of education to really learn or to see what you're saying. And so 
I personally, I'm into finance stuff. So, and especially on the Matrix Breakers podcast, we talk a lot about, you know, fiat currency system. I've talked a lot about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. So most people uh, listening to this podcast on Matrix Breakers kind of are familiar with my work. And then on Unearth Yourself is a relatively new podcast. Mm -hmm. So they're, you know, interested through the spiritual purposes that Unearth Ourself. Like we've, you know, talked about different topics, you know, whether it's like, closure in a relationship um you know we, we've had conversations about like auditing your life you know like how to take things in and out of your life things like that and so without further ado i'd love to just take an excerpt out of this out of this book i wanted to start with kind of in the chapter you got the seven debt strings and i wanted to read from the book okay so you say well in a debt money system people have to have jobs if they don't have a job how can they earn money how will they race to pay debt and take on more debt so we can have money? I mean, any job is considered a positive, no matter how destructive that job is to society or to the person doing it. The system requires as many able bodies working as much as possible for as long as possible. We don't need jobs to create our living. We need them to service the debt machine generating the money that we use. Can you kind of like explain that a little bit? Yeah, it's pretty crazy, isn't it? You know, I think even when you when we look at jobs, most people are unhappy with their jobs. But we don't really think about it that we're unhappy with it because, uh, you know, I just couldn't find a job that I like. The whole source of this is that we are using the wrong kind of money, um, that we actually do not have money today. And so that's another kind of crazy statement. But we're using borrower's debt. We're using debt masquerading as money temporarily. And the way I like to illustrate it best is to say, if you think of a quarter, it has a head side and it has a tail side. So when someone pays us, it looks like money. We get the head side of the quarter, but it really is someone's mortgage, someone's college debt. And that's why also the world is so much more indebted today and that we sort of rent everything instead of owning things. So since we have to have debt to have money, boy, we need to be able to earn that on the hamster wheel. So people are really subjugated to jobs. And, you know, the sad part with this is, is that we start to become conditioned that we don't really want to work. We want to be free of this because, of course, we want to get off the hamster wheel. But there are greater callings calling each person. And we even are really alive as we contribute to one another. So this weird conundrum, there's a secret reason as to why this is happening. Yeah, and, and you're not, you know, the debt makes sense as a creditor's economy and and you know being able to get something you can't necessarily afford outright right and so i i think of i think of if you use credit and debt essentially to earn more money you know instead of just buying more stuff yeah. things like that like starting a business right and and certain loans that make sense or mm -hmm. at least make dollars right mm -hmm. um so you're you're still a fan of that like credit and in a, in a system like that but more or less we are built off debt like in europe they they talk a lot about buying stuff outright they always look at the total cost of something in europe it seems like whereas in america we're always like how much a month is that right and so explain that to people yeah there's a big difference um and and even when we start to get the formula of money correct, you, you actually see the difference between credit and debt. And um, debt, as we know it, was always intended to be credit by people who, you know, money systems were created by us. 
right? So we decided that money was an awesome sort of innovation that helped us monetize barter, in essence, helped us monetize our exchanges with one another, because we've decided it's better to live in community than to each live on our own somewhere in the woods. I remember that because the kingdom of Lydia actually is modern day Turkey. They are the ones who created this medium of exchange known as money. It was a coin system. They were the first to do it in like ancient times, and they became the wealthiest nation ever. And it was because this coin, this this represented a medium of exchange, which was their their first ever really uh, wide known uh, money system. And so, just by being able to be like, "Hey, I'm going to trade this coin instead of just bartering," like you said, like you know, a cow for you know some kind of book or something like that, like these sort of trading economy doesn't really work. So, but there's a lot of people out there that believe that you can go back to a barter system. I mean, there's like Burning Man and all that, you know, no money and you just go and trade stuff and everything. And that works to a certain level, but explain to people why that doesn't work long-term and like why money still matters. Oh yeah. Um, you know, money is so important in so many ways. Today, society is so much more sophisticated, right? We have scale and scope. We have markets that are global. We have markets that are lo- local and it should be that way. Um, the reason why I think we have the trend toward no money or money is bad it's because we're using a form of money that's misdesigned today. And money, when it's properly designed, it's the subtitle. You get the dawn of the new abundant world because this abundance is constantly getting ready to flow. And because we're using the wrong tool of money to actually allow or facilitate these exchanges, you get these contortions. And so, um, the the big difference is that uh, money is a neutral technology. So, I say to people sometimes, if you look at an equation, seven seven equals two plus five, where's money in the equation? Mm -hmm. Right? Most people don't know. And I say, it's the equal sign. And the seven and the two plus five is either wealth that's being contributed before versus wealth that's being contributed now. And we've decided it's a match. We just need a tool like a neutral technology to facilitate that exchange. Just like the phone facilitates the communication, the wealth is the conversation, is the communication, and the phone is the neutral technology. So that's money versus the wealth we're exchanging. I, I love it. I, I, yeah, that's perfect. And I'm just going to move to another part of the book here because there's so much to get to. I feel like, hold on one second, guys. I There's so much in this book. I couldn't get to everything, by the way. So if you really want to learn, you got to like read the book. But there's I want to get into some history with you mm-hmm. um, because a lot of people don't know about the history about money and especially in, in America, right? Um, I'm going to read here from the book. And you're talking about Benjamin Franklin here. So, Franklin and the colonists knew their most important role was to be able to control the amount of money in circulation. It was not what backed the money, like gold or silver, that mattered. Instead, the true power of money was in controlling how much money circulated. Can you kind of explain that? Because people do think a lot about gold and silver and if money isn't backed by this or that. But Talk about how that how that worked back then. Yeah. You know, it really is fascinating. I think actually money history is the most fascinating history because now all history starts to make sense. Money history is the back history of all history. And a lot of it you can't find anymore. So I put as much of it as I could in this book <laughs> so that we really get the real education that our ancestors knew. I feel like this book knew. should be banned in the future. Like, it, you know, it's, yeah, no, it's got some great information. <laughs> it's what should be in kindergarten. It should be in every level of school. And that's why even um, if it doesn't, if it isn't as easy as one plus one equals two, something's wrong. 
right? Because money, again, like Benjamin Franklin knew, they backed it by land. They, when the colonial script first came out, they only issued as many as there as was equal to the productive ability of the colonists at the time. And so, money didn't have to have intrinsic value like gold or silver behind it. Um, that was sort of used in different ways to stop the counterfeiting or also whoever was issuing it to control the quantity. Now, when you control the quantity of the money in circulation, you control society. It's that simple. Yeah. And so what the colonists knew is that if there was more productive capacity of the people, they just needed to issue more money. And if there was too much money in circulation, they needed to issue a short-term tax to mop up that money. And that's why there was never really supposed to be federal income taxes either. Oh, yeah. And, we'll, and we, I think we'll get into that too. I'm going to continue reading from here. So, and people can refer back to, it's in a modest inquiry into the nature and necessity of paper currency, right? That's Franklin wrote that. Is that right? So, um, um, this is what that is. And Franklin described in that that paper, I guess you could say, or essay, Franklin described the success Pennsylvania and Massachusetts experienced when the amount of paper money circulating was properly controlled to match the people's needs. As she was kind of just explaining, not all colonies were so diligent, depending on how well they managed their money, determined whether they thrived or struggled because balancing the quantity of scrip, which was this currency at, the, at that time, with their productive capacity was critical. Dispersing too many scripts or withdrawing too few depreciated their value as inflation ensued. Likewise, if the amount in circulation fell below what was needed, trade was obstructed and deflation rose. Nonetheless, they stumbled upon the greatest power of self-governance and self-determination, the self-issuance of money. That's right. That's right. And that is the single most important thing that we need to learn and that what keeps a society free is that that particular country can issue its own currency. And so when you look at the United States versus a country in Europe who have adopted the euro, they now have become a state, right? And so the state of Colorado, the state of Massachusetts can't issue their own money, but the government can. And, um, and that's the greatest power that determines how free that country is. So, um, money, you know, it, we again, we run into this sort of dualistic, confusing part where we think, oh, no, no, we're taught. The first thing we're taught, money has to be scarce to have value. And I'll tell you, that's the greatest untruth, mistruth, lie, whatever we want to call um, money. And then we automatically think it should be unlimited. But no, money should be flexible, like the equal sign. If we have a hundred equations that match, that solve, we don't have to go dig up equal signs. They we uh, they automatically appear. So when when an economy is working correctly and when money is being created properly, it comes in in and out of existence, keeping in perfect balance with the real production of the people. That's, yeah, that's perfectly said. Because you know, in in part of the book, it's like explaining what the British ended up doing, which is they knew this this colonial script, right? This was kind of getting out of hand, as you kind of had placed it there, and that the British. Parliament had passed the Currency Acts of 1751, and not a lot of people know about this. Um, there's two of them in 1764, and they obstructed the colonies from issuing their own money. That's right. Okay. And people, I mean, people on my podcast are like loving, loving history. So, I will read from this. The colonists suffered after these, these Currency Acts were passed, uh, and by the end of 1765, uh, Francis Facure, I guess that's his name, the governor of Virginia remarked, circulating currency had grown very scarce as people were distressed for money of any kind. And the British 
hurt their own local economies as the colonists no longer had money to purchase goods from them. Being able to control the quantity of the money supply is what allowed the colonies to become empowered and flourish. They were alarmed as they lost the right to regulate their own financial affairs as parliament took full control of their banking system. This goes to the point of um, well, later, actually, you, you, you refer back to this. In 1883, Peter Cooper, vice president of the New York Board of Currency, wrote in his book, now this is, again, a, an astute economist probably of the time, he explained that going back to the revolution, when you really think about it, this is what, what he wrote in this book called Ideas for a Science of Good Government. And this is a quote from his book. After Franklin had explained to the British government the real cause of the colony's prosperity, they immediately passed laws forbidding the payment of taxes in that money. This it um, well, this produced such great inconvenience and misery to the people that it was the principal, the main meaning, the principal cause of the revolution, a far greater reason for a general uprising than the Tea and Stamp Act was the taking away of print of the of paper money and I'll just finish by saying this because people don't know about these particular pieces of history I mean we learn in in school basic education is that the American Revolution was started based off taxes but in reality at that time it was really started because the British government seized from the colonists the power to create money and circulate money in their own way, right? That's right. Which was the power to be free. You know, when you take away the power to for a country or you know any people to take to regulate their own currency, they're immediately no longer free. And you know, this is comes back to where we are today because our money is borrowers' debt. We're using people's mortgages as our money. That's ninety-seven percent of the money we're using. And so, if people aren't able to continue to take out mortgages, people aren't able to get raises or get hired or have their businesses flourish. And you know, that can be turned on, that can be turned off. And so, we have that same mechanism of control lurking. It's it's a little bit more covert than it was in those days. And um, when the colonists first got to America, they were totally in debt. That's really why they came here. They wanted to be free of it. And the British government did not allow them to mint coins, and there was very little gold in New England. So they came up with colonial script. And the British government at that point said, wow, it's a mischief. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get rid of this mischief. And, you know, they did a really good job. Even even though the colonists won the war, um, by the time we got to 1812, and even during the war, the British and the French parked tall ships up and down the eastern seaboard with printing presses just to throw off that balance. And, and you know, it created havoc because the single most important power is to be able to make sure that the amount of money in, fluctu- in circulation is equal to the fluctuating productive capacity. Yes. And we're, people. and we're going to talk more about that like through blockchain and some like possible future things. And um, one of the things that people don't realize is you kind of get into this, you know, throughout the book. Um, this is why people should really read this book. I'm reading from like pages like 116 to 17. And, and um, I, don't, I mean, we don't have to get to all this, but I was, I was just highlighting because I'm like, yes, this is so powerful. Um, one of the things that people don't realize is the British may have won the um, the, or sorry, lost the war, but they won when it came to the economic control of the United States. And so this was the banking system, the first national bank of America after the war, because they were so indebted, right? And there was this whole problem with continental dollars. And there was this whole thing about, you know, trying to um, get some kind of real currency and 
one that the, all the colonies would accept. Um, so that was already an issue. But once they established the first national bank, the largest private, you know, owner of that bank was the Rothschilds. And these they had already a controlling interest in the economic system of America. This was the money that they would issue to the actual government here, very much like the Federal Reserve Bank. Can, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I mean, when you look at these systems, we sort of have never left the king and queen system of the world. We're still dealing with the hierarchical systems, and we've had bursts of freedom in between. And I'll say sometimes we just had not been able to maintain that consciousness of, of responsibility per se. That's why it didn't stay. And we wanted maybe someone to take care of us and to keep it in that order. And these are the institutions. But I tell you, when you give up your responsibility, like people, People will say sometimes, if you're not interested in politics, politics is interested in you. I say that quite often. You do? I love it. And if you're not interested in money, well, money is interested in you. And so we're, we're now we're getting to the point where I think we're starting to see the level of corruption or the lack of freedom. And money is backed by our good, by what we contribute. That's the only thing that makes it valuable. So why should we not be the ones who are determining how much is in circulation and how how much good is is happening? Um, so back in 1812, um, the corporate powers, which really are corporate powers, came back into play. Well, no, because <laughs> the the first charter was up, the bank charter. It was a it was a temporary measure during or in the first like you know well I say first continental congress, but I'm saying that like when we were established as a nation, this is in 1790, like late 1790s. George Washington was president. We had the first national bank, and I, I remember that there was a charter. So it was only like a 10 year or 15 year charter. I think that makes sense because that leads into the War of 1812, which was essentially people don't really they skip over that part of history, but that really was the second American Revolution. Right. Okay, and that was because the bank system was coming to an end. Okay, and that the government at the time, the American government at the time, said, "Hey, we we really shouldn't do another national bank." So there was this, this uh, the politics of money was so prevalent inside of the early American, you know, uh, republic that we had, and and so and again, we even now know through this book and some other information that it was the principal cause of the revolution in the first place. So the politics of money is so important that it was still an issue even up into 1812, and that second charter was up, and that's why we ended up going to war because the British came in and said, you know, we have to have control of their financial interests. And because there was this debate in Congress around how we shouldn't do another bank. And then boom, we're at war because of trade differences in Maine and off the fishing waters and what we agreed on and d didn't agree on Canadian, all this stuff. So, we, but we go to war and then Andrew Jackson wins the battle of New Orleans and all these things happen. But ultimately, Andrew Jackson knows this too. The second national bank is established after the War of 1812. So once again, the Rothschilds get con financial control over America e e through this sort of private lending issue. And so, I mean, we'll have to probably take a break there. But at the end of the day, we have to recognize that this was the politics of money. You know, and and it led to that revolution. Even though we won again, we still were suckered into this national banking thing. You cannot have freedom unless you have monetary freedom. And that's where it has to start. So no matter what we're seeing in the world today, and no matter how hopeless we feel at certain times, unless we control the money, you cannot control your government, you can't control 
anything. So we can't even have a a republic or a constitution that's fully functional until we the people recognize that the money power comes from us. And now today, we're standing at the precipice where all of our ancestors are cheering us on because no people have ever been here. We have the technology now to do it where it cannot be corrupted, plus this basic, simple wisdom of what money is and how to do it is meeting it at the crossroads. So this is why we're standing at this gorgeous precipice for unbelievable positive change. So another part of the book I, I was really fascinated in was something that she got into was Marianne Williamson. And there's many people out here probably listening that know who Marianne Williamson is. Um, how would you define Marianne Williamson, actually, before we I quote her? You know, I mean, she's always been sort of a beautiful leader of wonderful spiritual thought. You know, really talking about how transcending a lot of the duality that we experience, seeing that war inside of us, um, how we can look for new pathways in order to envision a better future and start with ourselves to create that framework in order to bring it into the world. I completely agree. And anyone looks up Marian Williamson on Amazon, they'll see all her wonderful books. She's kind of like a spiritual guru in a way. Um, she actually ran for president. Yeah, she uh, did. Yeah, <laughs> I think too. Yeah, the last one. And yeah, and I remember thinking, you know, when I started reading this, I was kind of thinking, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I didn't know how involved she was kind of like in government or in government circles. Um, but let me, I'm going to get into this. And um, we were talking a lot about money, and we're going to get back into that. But I wanted to take kind of a minute to explain. Um, I think that what, uh, just to give context, you were talking a little bit here, and I kind of agree about, um, or even before this too, how, you know, money is used in war, you know, and it's like war's a racket, and there's so much corruption and money that deals with war, and, and war is a product of our broken financial system in a way. So, I mean, if you want to get into that really quick, you share a little bit about that? I mean, I would say war is directly related because of the way the dollar is created today. And again, the dollar has been created many different ways. So, it's just that when, do- when money is debt, you have to have war. You can't not have war. Because the problem is that as soon as someone repays their mortgage or repays the debt, that dollar is destroyed, right? So um, it's created as double book entry. When And we always think, oh, paying off debt is good. Well, when the whole society does it, there's no money in society. So as soon as someone pays the debt, a new debt has to be created. And that means everybody has to create debt. And there's no way to do it fast enough. So the, the fastest way that you create debt is by having war. And so when money is debt, and I'll say there's seven imperatives with this. Number one is that, yeah, you have to constantly have debt, and then you have to have more debt. And then you have to have speculation, because again, it creates debt faster, which destroys investment, destroys investment capitalism. It also perpetuates nonstop war. And if we want to stop war, we have to re-articulate, we have to redesign, we have to do the, the way our founding fathers did money. Yeah, absolutely. And so, this is why she got into Marianne Williamson's idea of the creation of a Department of Peace. Because mm-hmm. we have, a, of course, a Department of Defense. It used to be called the Department of War, but they changed that for political reasons. Um, and I kind of wanted to read a little bit of what the Department of Peace was about. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll, I'll read here. So, the Department of Peace will put equal attention on domestic issues as well as international issues. Just as we have a military academy, we will have a peace academy. Therefore, we can have a much more sophisticated approach to analysis of what it would take to create a peaceful world. 
Today, there is no place in our government where that is the primary function. What is important in this inquiry in which we are involved is that we are asking fundamental questions. What does it truly mean to be human? What does it mean to be a country that is centered in its heart? There is some in-depth rethinking going on. Sometimes in life, you do not need to know what you can do, but you show up for whatever needs to be done. And because you showed up, what you do then appears. I think that people... I think that people think we are naive when we say, let's start by empowering the people, feeding the women and children. Well, I think that people who think we can continue on this planet the way it is with the large forums of suffering people that exist, I think they're naive. So explain that a little bit. Yeah, you know, that's actually from Marianne Williamson's speech of this, right, you of were this conference I went to. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's just really saying that again, as we continue to tread down this path, that we actually imagine we can get a better solution. Of course, we're going to get the same problems. So really, she's articulating Einstein's famous quote of saying, you have to have a new consciousness from the problem to actually catch that solution. And this is where the book is so compelling because we have no idea what the problem is really until we find out, wow, money is creating out of mortgage debt. Therefore, there's never enough money for the American dream. It was never intended to be created this way. So when, when we start to grasp this consciousness, now we see the problem and we could even attract the solution. Otherwise, we're left divided in politics, economic theory, and social issues. That's so facts. Like, because... People don't even acknowledge the problem that we're currently experiencing, and people don't understand that a lot of it does have to do, again, with the politics of money and just how money is in society. And there's so many um, ideologies that go maybe against capitalism, and so they kind of favor more of a socialist or communist model, uh, and they don't believe that ca- – they think capitalism has failed them, uh, when in reality, we're not in – capitalism and we just showed a graphic there's like we're kind of in a corporatism and so can you kind of explain that a little bit like why we still why capitalism really isn't even practiced right now and why it could actually if it was genuine and free market like why that makes more sense for society yeah i love that i love talking about this because i feel like capitalism gets so mislabeled and so maligned right now um we we don't have investment capitalism today which absolutely was intended to be created it almost sort of fell off in the 80s. We went to finance capitalism. The banks got consolidated. Businesses really, their bottom lines went on the finance charges instead of making the products and services that they offer. So investment got very skewed. And now we're moving into surveillance capitalism and all these other kinds of things, that it's really corporatism. And so when people say, wow, you know, look at look at what a bad actor capitalism is. No, it's the money. So I like to say there's nothing wrong with the car. There's something wrong with the gas. And when you use borrower's debt as money, you have to create more and more and more and more debt. Everyone has to be enslaved on the hamster wheel to overconsume, be campaigned to become materialistic on a level that they wouldn't even be, to manufacture stuff into junk, to get people into debt, to have lousy jobs, to re-earn, to repay, to retake out debt, to wreck investment into speculation, you you to go to war, and then you can't even have a real democratic republic because you have to have a small polity of people. You must. You have to have something like the Federal Reserve to keep the system in balance. Mm-hmm. And so even though you know a lot of people say, end the Fed, if you ended the Fed with this system, it would be total chaos. And so the system requires that. So I say, let's get to the root of it. 
And now all of a sudden, uh, certainly through alternative currencies, right away people can make a host of change. Yeah, and let's get into some of that really quick. Hold on a sec. Let's see. You had mentioned some things. I mean, towards this chapter's peace, not war. I'll read a couple, you know, things because you were you were kind of you're transitioning into more of the solution and what is the what is the real solution? Because because you know half the book you're explaining this real problem, and people don't really know. And there's some people like a, if you read a Robert Kiyosaki book, you kind of get the idea. Um, but you know, you're more like how to make money in the system we're already in. Whereas what you're explaining here is the system is broken, and here's why. And then towards the end, you kind of start explaining like some of these solutions. So um, I'm gonna just read. I mean, these are your quotes and then also quotes from the other um i think you might be quoting somebody else but um, you say when we step out of the web of debt and war and into the web of interconnectedness and love the idea of plenty becomes obvious instead of impossible to imagine we are the caterpillar becoming the butterfly i think this is deepak i think this is deepak yeah and um we are being reworked on every level, birthing new understanding, integrating it, and emerging with a new mind and heart, and as new people with a new way of living. We are leaving scarcity behind, and our exchanges are no longer mere transactions. Instead, we are beginning to value and respect each other for our collective contributions and creation. So, I mean, kind of, you know, get into that. I mean, break that down for people. Yeah, this was after listening to Deepak talk about how the caterpillar becomes the butterfly. And he was saying it's not a worm with wings. It's a totally new creature. And you know, the gene that changes the butter, the caterpillar that grows its wings is actually in the human heart. And that's pretty amazing. So my main thesis is, even as we're going this revelation, this seeming breakdown, there's something greater calling us that we are the people who are at this precipice, who were called at this time to get this knowledge and now have the tools to do it. And we have the consciousness to do it, which is the key. And it only takes a few of us. It really doesn't take that many of us. And we're so close to that flip. So um, the major thing here is to understand that money and wealth are two totally separate things. And I think this is also a really sort of challenging concept, even though it's simple, because we've been indoctrinated, of course, to think they're the same. And even for me, for my career, I help people manage their money. But money is just a tool, a mechanism. Wealth is inherent in who we are. It's our passions and our talents and our inspiration. The cup runneth over. Every single baby that's born is new wealth that's added to that community. You know, the perspective GP, you know, whatever GDP goes up in that, you know. And so um, wealth is also everything that we buy with money, the abundant resources of the earth, everything we create. So they're separate. And even if you got rid of all the money today, all the wealth would still exist. The problem is that what we've stored in the money would disappear. So that's that's an issue. But when we start to shift to say, my goodness, no one could take the wealth away from me, is the tool of money that we've created to assist us in these exchanges, is it done correctly? Rut row, no, it isn't. And it's done so badly that it turns society against each other. But the good news is it's so easy to change. Yeah, and on that topic, you're. I read here that you let's see what where is it in the back of the book you went to some school it says in india so i want to take a minute um is that correct 
So yeah, explain, I, explain your spiritual journey a little bit, because a lot of people maybe, they look at you maybe as a technical person, but really you're, you're actually more of a pretty spiritual person and had some pretty interesting experiences in life. Yeah, I would say even my whole life, the two things I've been interested in are in money and spirituality, totally. And, um, you know, probably in the 90s when I would go to spiritual conferences early, they would say, wow, don't you feel conflicted that you work in money? And I would say, how strange, why are they separate? You know, they're they're you know, they're totally the same thing. One is the unmanifest, one is the manifest. And so we have this contortion about money because we've been living in a system where money has been designed to make us work against each other. And, you know, money is waiting for us to get it right. It's saying, hey, I'm this playful, wonderful tool here to serve you. Tell, you know, what do you want to create today? What do you want to express? What kind of a world do you want? And so when we design the tool of money right, oh boy, does the world change. Yeah. And so, I mean, and what was your history there? Like you, if you traveled to India, you know, what did you experience? Like what has been your spiritual life like? Yeah. You know, I've, I've, had, a, I've had a lot of fun. I've, I've learned a lot of things. I've had some pretty amazing experiences. And in India in particular, this one wonderful uh, school I would go to, there were 155 villages that surrounded the um, main teaching center. And everybody would say, oh, we have to raise money for them. Oh, they're so poor. And um, I actually, as this work was really coming through, we began to demo it and to really get out and figure out how could we use it for them. Because I, as I walk through the villages, It really, I looked at them and I thought, you know what? They aren't poor. In fact, they're incredibly wealthy. They have family. They have history. They have religion. They have talents. They have skills. They have imagination. They have resources. The only thing they don't have is money. So could we not help them to create an alternative token of money backed by their production, limited by the supply and demand of what they're producing, to produce more legitimate money in in their society? And it just shifts everything. Mm-hmm. And now they become empowered people you know, from their own talents and resources, able to create a very legitimate system of exchange that's that's monetized. Yeah, and, and like going in the, more in the book, you uh, you had said um, public banking. So let's, let's, let's I'm going to read a couple quotes here. Public banks could create better safety for depositors and more resilient economies, even a better environment for the large and small commercial banks. Uh, and public banks would help the unbanked and underbanked where commercial banks struggle to operate. The unbanked and underbanked, who are they? People who don't earn enough money to have a bank account or need small loans in between paychecks. A survey done a few years ago suggests one in four U.S. households is more broadly affected, including households where banking fees take too much of their check to use, so they don't have access to regular banking services. And so you kind of went on to say, but without a bank account or a credit card, they are at the mercy of high-cost predatory lenders, like loan sharks, but they're legal. Um, and, and then public post office banks would democratize. So this is, I mean, we'll go over the public banking and how that makes sense. And then you, you said here that public post office banks would democratize access to loans and other basic banking services people need, but can't get where they live. And I, I, I don't know if you get into it. I forgot where, or or if you already mentioned it. But you even mentioned that apparently the postal system was designed this way. I know Benjamin Franklin was. If y'all don't know this, Benjamin Franklin was the the father of the modern day U.S. postal system. Explain that to people like that and the public banking thing. 
So public banking is a really neat idea. And Ellen Brown, who's a friend of mine, brought the idea sort of back into the public consciousness, um, 2007, 2009. And North Dakota, that's one of the most conservative states we have, has the only thriving, the only public bank, and it's thriving. And so most people look at it as a socialist idea. But even, and Ellen will say that the uh, Wizard of Oz, the story was created about the farmer's plight against the bankers. The bankers were the witches and the farmers, because they would call in loans early, right before the harvests were due. And they were really tired of losing the monetary value of their hard labor from the way the banking system was. So they just they banded together, they created a public bank. Now, still, it depends on the people in the state how well, just like the colonists, how well that's going to be run. But the big thing is, is that if, when you have a public bank, all the state real estate, assets, pensions, tax revenue is the capital of that bank. So when we look at 2008, when the big banks went down, they went down because their capital to asset ratio was too small. They were over leveraged in homes. That's right. They were in in bad, bad debt, right? And then they leveraged that bad debt to the hilt. So that made everything collapse because since they couldn't issue more loans, we didn't have new money being created because those loans are what we're using as money, right? So this is where you get a boom and a bust from because a boom and a bust is not a normal thing in an economy. It comes from using money as debt. Now, if our if we had 50 state banks, they, it would be really hard for them to go down because to be that leveraged and to have all of your real estate, your pensions, your tax revenue. So the state of North Dakota continued to be able to make loans to small businesses during the Great Recession. Now, and this isn't like printing their own money, right? This is uh, still printing Federal Reserve notes. That's right. But it's through their own banking system that's backed by collateral that actually has value. Yeah, exactly. It, it says, listen, we're still solvent even if the country doesn't look very solvent because our assets still have value. And the reason why 2008 went down, it was a credit crisis in the, st- in the sense that credit could not be extended. And so if you had a legitimate business and you were in California and you were going to a big bank, they couldn't make a loan to you anymore because their balance sheets were in such bad state. And if they couldn't make a loan to you, no new money could be created to go into the society. And we got this incredible implosion. Well, in North Dakota, quite the difference. Um, so the state bank, which actually supports the commercial banks. So right here in hand, they, they act as like a mini federal reserve to the commercial banks and so you have almost a self-operating system. They, if, if you had 50 uh, state banks, you, the Federal Reserve itself would become irrelevant because they would replace that on a very Jeffersonian well, this, model. Well, there's always been you know, state banks. Before the Federal Reserve, There's you know, state banks have been a thing, but there was always this um, kind of controlled collapse of all these state banks. You know, And then people would panic. You know, rush the bank, take their money out of it, so they could put it in a national bank. You know, something like that. Um, but yeah, so then it, it. So, how would we leverage? You know, like lawmakers or people in your own state locally. If someone's listening, you know, like how do you get this idea across to people? This this idea of you can start your own bank as a state. You can. Yeah, Ellen actually has started a really big movement. She's and, and her readers even started an institute for her. So a lot of campaigning on the local level and then and getting candidates to run on the idea. It's very, very, very doable. My only concern with it is 
you know, are, are the people actually, you have to understand the money mechanics. So reading this book would really be a prerequisite because what could spring out of it is still a universal basic income. And so this is something that, you know, is being toyed around. We may see a lot of it in the next year or the year coming. Um, basically saying, listen, people don't have enough money to live off of. The government is going to give a monthly payment. And I'm really suspicious of that because that keeps people entrained in the system. It's like feeding people in the cage. Yeah. And, and kind of just to break it down, like, you know, um, there was this article in the Zero Hedge I mentioned to you and how some of these, you know, because we live in a republic, we have all these different states and depending on where you were during the pandemic would kind of equal your life uh, experience, right? And that was whether you're in a red state or a blue state. It, it, people actually felt the difference between these different states. And it's, it's unfortunate that it had to be that way. However, the way that they governed state by state was different. And so this Zero Hedge article I read, and I even posted it all over my social media. I was like, this might be the most important article I've read in the last two, three months. And I read articles all the time. And it explained how some of these red states that chose a different path than the federal government during the COVID deal, they can also, in a federal a federalist system, they are able to maybe even govern their own money supply because they know that the Fed has their own ulterior agenda, which is to actually bankrupt the United States ultimately because I think the Fed itself is ready to absolve itself to the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements, and they're ready to make that leap into a central digital currency. And so, and we we know that Bitcoin isn't that, you know, we, we talk about that too, but uh, it's like people have to realize that there are ways for these different states to make laws and make institutions, banking and, and financing especially, that can avoid or circum circumnavigate this storm that is that's here. I mean, we're in it now, but like it's coming even worse. Uh, the financial system is they're trying to great reset it, and so I think states are a hedge against this kind of thing. It kind of explain how that can work. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really true. I, I like to say that the core of the book is is the revelation of the democratization of the creation of legitimate money. So we all can create money, we all can do this, but is anybody going to accept it? Is it going to be legitimate? And so when we really engage in that process, especially on the state level, we have we have shifted the tables. And any intra-governmental or any super-governmental agency can do anything they want. And it's nice, okay, they do what they want, and it becomes relatively irrelevant because there are other pathways. And, you know, even if we get a global currency, let's say, and that's probably long been on the table. Um, you know, when we went from bimetal money, when we went from silver and gold down to gold, which constricted the money supply, the problem with gold being money is that it's short in supply on a relative basis. And certain actors... It's not good for an expanding, growing economy. No, it's it's perfect for a tight hierarchical system where it's chain of command. You, the people who have more of it tell you what to do. My dad used to always say, those with the gold make the golden rules, right? And so um, we've gotten confused between sound money thinking it has to be backed by some other intrinsic something. No, no, no. Money is the equal sign. Money is is not supposed to have value at all. So um, now if a global currency comes, it also probably comes in scarce quantity. So just like with the Eurozone, Germany and Italy and Spain lost the ability to really control their 
particular governments and that really they're economies. And now all of a sudden you're in the system. But you don't have to fight that system. You don't have to pull down the BIS or the Fed or any of these kinds of things. You just have to build your own pathways. And I think this is sort of the revelation of where we are. We're leaving this sort of trinity of victim, villain, hero consciousness that there's always sort of a bad actor. Now, it's not that we haven't been living that, but we're coming to the point where we're maturing, like the little chick in the egg who's bumping up against that shell and again saying, Rutro, wait a minute, this is the thing that keeps me safe, but it's also going to kill me if I don't begin to peck it down and let it dissolve. And the chick also cannot even imagine the world that's waiting for it. So we are at this precipice where these other institutions have also helped us. You know, a lot of times they're talked about for the negativity, but they've created a relative amount of stability. Certainly, more some people have been hurt a lot more by them than others. But at the same point in time, uh, now, as blockchain rises, as the consciousness comes back about public banks, and then also how to hold them accountable, how to begin issuing alternative currencies backed by production, pretty darn simple. And I even think we're going to see corporations doing it. And some people have said to me, wow, oh, that'll be bad, like if Amazon does it or Apple does it. No, no, no. Again, this is creating choice. And when there's choice, there's freedom. So um, we really, it, it, we, we, you know, it, it could get scarier looking, but at the same point in time underneath, um, so many good things are brewing. So you're making a point earlier about the solution to this kind of this issue that we're having. And you threw out a couple ideas, which one of them, which was like corporate backed tokens or money. And you also talked a little bit about blockchain, which it seems like you're certified in, you're well-versed in. Um, so let's get into this idea of, like you said, Amazon, but like other corporations creating their own currency system or their own tokens or certificate system. Um, and, and just my own thoughts on that, which I reflected to you, which was that I think of it as kind of a Dave and Buster's where you go into Dave and Buster's, you know, you pay, you can't use your money, your, your cash to get on the games. You actually have to get a game card and then you put money on the game card and it turns into, you know, the tokens that they have. And so inside of this environment, you are able to use up these tokens. And then of course you can't use your Dave and Buster's card to go buy groceries or whatever, but you're able to use it inside of this environment. And in a way, uh, it kind of creates a controlled system inside of their, their environment. But also, you know, I think it's able to, it, it kind of gets you to, you know, you buy more, like it's a credit system and you buy into it and then you can just utilize that uh, like normal. So it's not too far-fetched what you're saying, but if you can express a little bit about how, how corporations can start to do this. No, I mean, it's even totally happening. Today, or even small businesses. Small uh, small businesses. And small businesses is really where it's at, even though I do think we're going to see it on the megalith, on the corporate level. Um, it's, it's so, I was just even thinking a good place to start to really drive the point home is when you, you think about the Great Depression, there were all these people that wanted to work and there was food. And instead of finding a medium of exchange, like, you know, there are all these kids that want to go to the fair and there are all these rides that want to run, but they need tickets, 
right? And so the people wanted to work and the food needed to be picked. But because they didn't recognize the basic principles of money, that money just has to be backed by the products and services in the limited in the quantity circulating by supply and demand, the people stood in soup kitchen lines and the food rotted in the fields. It's incredible, really. Mm-hmm. So we look at the environment today and you have all different kinds of corporations that go and get loans from Wall Street, that do bond raises, that do capital equity raises, and whatnot. Now, they, like crowdfunding, could go directly to their customers, especially if they sell ubiquitous products. Hypothetically speaking, Amazon could easily be a case we could just imagine, right? Because people largely would take an Amazon gift card because it buys a lot of different kinds of things. And the question is, you know, anybody can issue their money. I could issue Kristen dollars. Now, who's going to take them? Maybe my sister, you know, maybe, yeah. you know, right? So my ecosystem might be really small. So I'm not going to have a lot of scale and scope. But when you take a large corporation or a city or something like this, that ecosystem's pretty darn big. Now, the question is, do they take advantage of it? Do they really have the product of whatever they determine backs it? That's pretty easy to verify. Uh, is the supply and demand, is the demand for the product there? Today in our world, this stuff can absolutely be transparently disclosed, documented. So they can issue, quote unquote, gift certificates or futures contracts. And once that product's been delivered, that stuff can be destroyed. Now, our dollars, once the debt is repaid, that creates those dollars, our dollars are destroyed. People don't know that, but when the loan is paid back, those dollars that created the loan that created those dollars, it's like a yo-yo. Those dollars are now yanked out of society. Now, when you say that, so like when I pay an auto loan and I pay it to Chase Bank, you're saying that like that money I'm paying back to them, it's like they don't, they can't just reissue that money or what do you mean by it's destroyed? It's destroyed. So let's say that your payment, let's just make it easy and say the payment's $500 a month. And of that, $200 is principal, or let's say $250 to make it easy. You send them the check for $500. Now, $250 is interest. So that interest is going to continue to recircle. Because a lot of people say the money system is corrupt because the interest isn't created off the loans. I say not true. Because we pay back those big portions of the loans in small monthly payments. Now, that, that interest continues to recircle. So Chase is supposed to pay their employees, pay it out in different ways, pay it in interest to people, theoretically. Uh, but the principle that goes against your loan, because now you owe $250 less. So that money, when you send it to them, it gets deleted off your loan account, but it also gets deleted forever. And this is why we're in the predicament we're in, because if you pay off your car loan, better for you in the short run, worse for society as a whole. Wow. Okay. If we paid off the government debt, we would have poverty like you've never seen before, because the government debt is really a lot of the money we're using. And, you know, when they create the money for Social Security, they just type it into people's accounts. And it doesn't actually come from the tax revenue. Tax revenue is sort of a misnomer on the federal level. It's what makes those Federal Reserve notes in demand. That's pretty much it, I think, when you break it down other than nuances that could exist. So the problem is where people think, again, debt and money are separate. They are one in the same. And when it comes into existence, it's still, if I borrow $100,000, they give me $100,000, but they also give me $100,000 of debt. And as that money begins to circulate, it still really is my 
mortgage or my debt, and I have to run now fast to be able to fish it out of society to pay it on time. Mm-hmm. And every time I make my monthly payment, whatever is principal is destroyed. And, and how is this different from, like you're saying, a product-backed currency? So the difference would be is that you can have a thriving business with thriving customers, and you take loans to get your business started, but you have to earn X amount of Federal Reserve notes every month to pay your bills. Now, that means that your customers have to also earn them and run at such a pace relative to where interest rates are. The higher interest rates are, the more we have to all, the higher the velocity. We have to work harder, faster. We have to earn more money. And um, if your customers don't earn enough money to pay you, then you can have a legit business that goes out of business because the only thing that you can retire your debt in is federal reserve notes. So what this produces is a system of scarcity. It produces a hierarchy of scarcity where the money floats to the top. It floats to those who are working in finance, in real estate, in insurance, who are also the people who are not really doing the real productive contributions in the world. Right. So even if we took farmers, I think it's two percent of the U.S. population, might be one percent, but you know who actually produces the real farms, you know, all of our food. I say they're the real one percent. But if they don't earn enough Federal Reserve notes in time, they could lose their farm. So when farmers start issuing their own gift certificates or money backed by the amount of food that they deliver, they can retire their debts in the product that they create. And so if you took Amazon, Apple, Uber, um, Airbnb, you know, I, I love these examples as hypothetical potentials. And if you had them issuing their own gift certificates, basically their own, um, like you, you take a big grocer as an example, and they decide to do a capital raise in their store by saying, listen, spend $100, spend $1,000. It only costs you $90 or $900. You get 10% off your food. And now they give you a certificate, much like when you go to a farmer and you pay for the food in the winter, every week in the summer, you come and you pick up your basket of food. Now, but is that certificate only redeemable at that business or are you like, do we want to kind of widen the range that this particular certificate or currency can be used? So when you begin to back, uh, when you, when you start to issue alternative currency backed by production, it's only going to be retired once it's, it's exchange for what actually the specific promise was, but it can be used in between a thousand times, right? Just like if you lent someone money, the money that you have in savings could be used and they give it back to you. But the if, if I issue, if I'm a big farmer, I'm a big retail store, and I issue X amount of promises to deliver, and um, people give me Federal Reserve notes at the beginning for that, that I use for a host of things, investing in my business. And then once these circles get up and running, that isn't needed. But now people who take my promise to deliver could hire other people if they're willing to accept it. If they trust me as an issuer, if I can be transparent, here's where the blockchain makes a humongous difference. And now all of a sudden that that promise to deliver that Kristen money has validity so it can have scale and scope. And it takes an interested community at the beginning to say, wow, I get the problem. And boy, we could become a pod of change. And you get a few interested stakeholders who begin to say, yeah, you could get gas for this, or yeah, you could use wellness services or a doctor or even a builder. Um, Well, I think a farmer and a grocery store are like really good examples because 
if a grocery store, you know, gave certificates out and or kind of issued their own money in that sense, or if it's blocked by backed by blockchain, obviously you can go redeem that certificate at their store because it's you know redeemable or backed by a certain product or the whole grocery store because there's many products in a grocery store. Um, but then you say so this one certificate could be also used as pay- form of payment, you know, at a, a local restaurant or like some other place where. We're all shopping at the grocery store. If we all accept this as legal tender in a way, mm-hmm. those certificates are used as payment, you know, the, to another person. It's almost like giving people gift cards. Absolutely. You know? I mean, and really, in essence, there's no difference between money that way. You know, but you're legitimately creating new money inside right. of this. It's not backed by fiat. It's backed by a, pr- a product inside of these systems. And so, blockchain kind of exp- explain how blockchain cannot just like you can just cr- some guys you know on his computer making a new currency. You know, and and then wh- however many people buy that currency will determine the value of the currency. Um, and and that's kind of where blockchain is right now, very like elementary. But then if you get a blockchain that was designed based off of a currency that was or a certificate based system inside of a company, how, explain the difference with that and how that would make sense. Yeah, it's all the difference between speculation, right? So we were so geared to thinking, okay, success and money is like the game of Monopoly. Um, we need to get more more of it to the point where we can get off the hamster wheel. The problem why we're on the hamster wheel is because we're, we 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 need to constantly be on running to create new debt to even have money to use. I mean it's 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 amazing how many brain flips we could have how inane this is. Now when um, instead money comes into existence backed by promises to deliver a certain amount of production in a certain amount of time, blockchain becomes the fantastic, immutable, transparent accounting book that's peer-to-peer. You really don't need administrators. You don't need middlemen for this. And um, so producers of high reputable value who are producing stuff that's in real demand with real supply uh, now suddenly become those who begin to really issue our money supply. And that's how it was intended to be. Um, This becomes the wildcat banking of the 1800s, but with legitimacy. And so legally, it's alternative currency. No one's trying to upend the, the dollar or fiat or anything. We're just, it becomes relatively irrelevant. We don't care about it anymore. Yeah, because I mean, if you, if companies started to adopt this approach and it's like the local car wash, the grocery store and everything else, and I kind of want to get into what you explain. I think New York City did something like this or one of the major cities and that guy kind of had, it's a public bank though, I think. Um, but it's like, as soon as like, you have these certificates from different, you know, places or blockchain or current crypto kind of currencies from these different companies. And it's all of a sudden they start to accept them as legal tender, just in a legal community. Again, you're not, yeah, you're not creating it as like against the fiat where you kind of are in a way, but like, you're just, you don't have to have fiat to live your life or pay your rent. Like for example, of course, if, if you're, if your landowner accepted, you know, certain forms of payment that were different or like a certain thing that was different, even if it was Bitcoin or something like that, you know, so kind of get into like that, how that would set, that would create a whole new idea, a whole new reason for people to utilize the, what they consume and, and think about what they consume. And also, of course, looking at certain companies that are pro-democracy in that sense, 
Um, but kind of get into that and also the public money system that was, I think, in New York. I think that was that one guy. I forgot what the city yeah, was. Yeah, Paul, Paul Glover who started Ithaca Dollars. Yeah, And yeah. They, they were tremendous. Um, every time there's been a real shortage of money, community currencies have always come through history and provided that extra liquidity that dries up, right? So you have all, like we were saying before that um, – if all the money was gone, the wealth would still exist in this world. And just like in the Great Depression with the farm fields and the men, you know, ready to do work and not doing it. So we, we just need to find a way to have liquidity. But how, and that's what money is, how do we make it legitimate? So community currencies that have thrived, and Ithaca dollars thrived for a long time. Um, you know, even, I, I, I think it was even Ithaca that took them for taxes. And even in some places now they're taking Bitcoin for taxes. So uh, Bitcoin to me is just as a sideline. It's still like digital gold. It's still scarcity money because it gets its value off of being scarce. So it's the opposite principle of breaking open the system and returning the liberation of what all generations have been praying for. Mm-hmm. You know, money again should be neutral, coming in and out of existence like like gift certificates. Well, and just super brief if you want, explain silver and gold and why silver was like the people's currency. Yeah, silver definitely was called the people's currency. Um, there was a worse depression in the late 1800s than in the early 1930s. And that's when there was the battle to get rid of silver money. Because silver was so much more available, it could be minted and used to facilitate the exchange. So it really created that need for credit, right? So in investment capitalism, banks were intended to, to assess investment properly and to legitimately extend credit to small business owners. Now, we know we're not living on that system anymore because they're entwined, they're caught, the Fed is caught. I think everybody's caught in this system where they have to create as much debt as possible and retire it and create as much because we're snagged in this horrendous self um, cannibalistic defeatist system. Well, and to top that off, just we were talking earlier too, is that you know if you applied for an auto loan, you know you do this shotgun financing, right? Where it's like you you apply to like ten different creditors. It's like basically they'll. I mean, one of them has to accept you, and so that means that they're all going to just be like, oh man, we all just need to create more debt and make more money from this opportunity. So then they all just continue to do it. And we we talked a little bit about this earlier too, but the mortgage financial crisis crisis of two thousand eight uh, was because they were issuing more mortgages than they actually had in terms of value in their portfolio. And so we talked also about if banks themselves, but also just people in general, were issuing credit only to those people with those certain right qualifications, we would have an overall better world. Oh, a totally better world. You know, ideally, auto loans should not be available. Now, that doesn't mean that people shouldn't be able to get cars, right? Even mortgages are highly questionable, right? So the, re- the reason why that is, is because a home was never supposed to be investment. It was supposed to be a home. And in the 1970s... It's oh, been inflated. It's been inflated. It's, it's, yeah. The value hasn't increased, but the price has, right? And so, and it's the same thing with college educations. And the reason is because you have to indebt as many people as fast as you can, because when the debt is paid, the debt is destroyed, and we're using the debt as money. And so we're caught in this crazy cycle. And now, if instead, in the 1970s, a house was three times salary, today it's like 10. 
uh, you know, a college education, 500 bucks, maybe a semester. Now it's like a decent sized house, mm-hmm. right? So you get this indentured servantness that moves throughout the society. We go to what's called a rentier economy where people don't, you know, like the Great Reset, you'll own nothing and be happy. Where people now don't own anything. They don't own their music on their phone. They don't own their phone. This is the opposite of what investment capitalism was about. And so, you know, there used to be higher down payments that were required for mortgages. If money was backed by production, the real abundance that exists throughout humanity would flow. And the the money where the people are doing the real work would flow. So people would be able to earn money more easily and at a higher living wage without contorting the system through raising minimum, minimum wage, sending excess payments to people for inflation or doing universal basic income. All is which contortion, all creates inflation, all creates ultimately ends in communism. Yeah. And, and can go through some of the other ideas that you were going through? Because, I mean, I'm, yeah, by the way, super like pro-capitalist, anti-communist in a way. Um, and you don't want to vertically integrate everything into just government control and what we're seeing now, which is just like a central government, you know, in a world government, right? Uh, we witnessed that project even in COVID and everything else. And we go over that on this podcast quite a bit. Um, but you, you know, I think that you were talking a lot about solution-oriented things, and I hadn't got to the end of this book yet, but you, you had expressed a lot of things, and can you share some of those things just open-endedly? Definitely. The super thing is, is that once the light goes off, which is, whoa, wait a second, I'm actually, when I go to the bank and I get a loan, I'm actually self-issuing my future production. The bank is saying to me, hey, it looks like you're going to be able to earn enough money to pay us back. Then, boom, they create it on the spot. Double book entry. I'm not borrowing anyone's money. The the even fractional reserve lending really doesn't exist anymore. Banks can create as much money as people are willing to borrow. And what created 2008 is that people couldn't borrow anymore. That's really what created it. And then it imploded. Which we're kind of there again. We're, we're, yeah. It's, it's, uh, Right. And it, and the sad part with this stuff is it could turn at any moment. Um, a lot of the money that was created during COVID funded a lot of insolvent states. I do think that's where you got bigger shutdowns in quote unquote blue states yep. because their balances were worse. Yeah. And then the they longer- They were bailed out. They were bailed out. And so again, this is sort of to this more centralization movement. Um, the difference is that when we say, wait a minute- all money starts in a circle of exchange. So the credit card, you know, when when Visa first came out, it was Bank America card or something like that. I can never say it in like a smooth sentence. Mm-hmm. And it almost failed many times. And they were going to get, I think Bank of America was going to get rid of it. And then all of a sudden, there was enough push when people said, okay, all right, I'm going to accept it. Enough merchants started accepting it. Then people started using it. So it's the same thing with an alternative currency or any properly created currency backed by production. So if I am a producer of services that a lot of people want, and if I start issuing, you know, a promise to deliver, and people start saying, oh, I'm going to take it, then merchants who want to do more business with others, they're going to start taking it too. Yep. The big thing is that we have to be able to prove it's legit. Yep. 
and blockchain is what lets us do it. So an example that I will use, um, and this is when I was doing tons of research, I thought, my goodness, you look at, um, could we invest in organic farmers more? And organic, the drive for organic produce has grown like crazy. So I was thinking you could take a big food chain, Costco, Whole Foods, whatever. They could, again, do a capital raise at their store, discount to the people. And then they could go and take that money that they raised interest-free from their consumers, like crowdfunding, they could go directly to their farmers, buy their tractors, help them lease their land, and they could get paid back in produce. Mm-hmm. Right? And then those those tickets that would be redeemable, those gift certificates or product-backed dollars, private enterprise dollars, could circulate in the society, especially because it was a big retailer. So I went up to talk to some people in Vermont who wanted to start a food currency. And they said, oh, no, no, that will never happen. You'll never be able to get that done. I kid you not, a week later, I saw on the internet that Costco, in fact, was doing a trial where they were investing directly in farmers because they could not get enough organic produce. So they did this on the Baja Peninsula, and they got paid back in raspberries. And, you know, so you're just a couple steps away from actually turning that into something else. Um, you could take, again, like something like an Airbnb or who, who starts to issue and, and issues rewards in certificates that are worth stays at homes. And then their, their super duper rent, rental properties could take that money and invest in new bathrooms, new kitchens. Uber drivers or different types of, of paid car services could get bonuses in those tickets and upgrade their cars, pay for their insurance. And you get this kind of buy-in between. And now, boy, what happens? Investment capitalism starts becoming one of the best citizens that can never be legislated through socialism and communism because it comes to be transparent of what what really would make a better world and what do my customers want. And then your wallet rejects all of these producer credits. You know, only you decide who it is that you're going to accept. Mm -hmm. And then you get this thriving biosphere of all these different kinds of credits. And that itself would make the Federal Reserve note or every any government dollar safer. Yeah, because it's uh, hedging against the, the fiat, you know, and it's diversifying the current the currency system itself so that we can, you know, it's it's decentralize, you know, that's exactly. the idea. It's the decentralization that makes your participants more solvent, right? And the more and more people, especially small businesses, this is like a call and cry to small businesses to start to entertain these ideas, you know, and start to accept these kinds of things, either issuing their own currency system or uh, having or accepting other currencies, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or some of these other currencies and entertaining that because even if like you don't make as much or something happens where it's like a partial payment or something, at least you own a different form of currency. Like imagine even if you're a business owner and you sell knickknacks or something, but you know, you're, you're earning income. If you earn fiat and Bitcoin and all these different currencies, you can trade for one another. You can, you can cash out one, you know, in different ones, you can buy one with the other, but it's like, if you start to diversify, that means that especially in this new world we're going into, which we can talk about, you know, we're going into this world where the U.S. dollar may not be as strong. It may not be the world reserve currency. So if that were to ever happen, if there were some kind of worldly shift, the U.S. dollar would be like Zimbabwe. You know, it'd be like not worthwhile because people would not be buying bonds anymore. The bonds that they buy currently to to trade on the world markets. So it's like 
you know, if b- small businesses started to accept a local currency and then like, you know, diversify, um, e- even though it's like, it may not work or it may not be accepted everywhere. It's just gotta be a start somewhere, you know? Definitely. It's just when you, like when you think about farming, if you have a monoculture or monocrop, it's so much more susceptible to disease. And when you have a multiple collaborative type of farming, all the plants get stronger. And that's how money was supposed to be. And um, so you take the dollar, I mean, technically speaking, the Federal Reserve could create as much money to always repay the debts. So if the dollar's going down, I still would argue someone is deciding for the dollar to go down, you know? Um, But what literally makes banks more solvent is when borrowers are more, more solvent. And that means that the right amount of money is flowing where the right amount of productive pr- pr- productivity is happening. Which kind of helps right now, even in the slowdown, there's always this sort of how do we make do with what we have? And it's not a scarcity. It kind of does help the integrity of businesses kind of look at some things. But again, if we're going to go back into this prosperity, which might, you know, will happen through fiat, we have to look at it differently and make sure that as cryptocurrencies will rebound, okay, they will go back up to value. Like Bitcoin's all-time high will be surpassed, okay? And people will wish they bought all this, you know, while it's low. And But we have to make sure to like right the ship when, think, when we catch the wave again, you know? It's like we have to live in that fiat for a minute in order to create the bigger, better world. That's right. I mean, I really do think it's an opportunity to get money mechanics Correct. Like money mechanics, you, you talk about money theory, it'd be like the dusty corners of a boring library. And it's actually totally exciting, you know, and it's simple. So as these concepts that I've written in the end of ca- scarcity really start coming back in, it's like, whoa, wait a minute, this is fascinating. And we, we can do this. So, um, you know, Bitcoin becomes helpful, all this stuff becomes helpful. But it's still, you know, in the book, I write about how the game of Monopoly used to actually be the landlord's game. And Monopoly was just one way to play it. And on the other side was prosperity. But somehow the game of prosperity got lost along the way. Mm -hmm. And so we've been entrained to say, my gosh, I have to earn as much, get as much, da-da-da-da-da, and live for the money instead of saying, whoa, the money actually should be there when I focus on my contributions. And now I even get the space to say, who am I? What? What? How do I want to contribute today? And live in an ebb and flow and then maybe I redesign. I come to the next challenge. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, and this is how we're meant to live as humans with the rest of the planet. And instead, we're off on this crazy um, musical chairs push of obsession triggered by the survivor, mm-hmm. you know. And um, and so, we haven't been able to see this. We haven't been able to really find the solutions because we haven't found the problem. Now, we found the problem. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate your time and everything, and I, I absolutely love this podcast. And I feel like we can go on and on and on. Um, and I mean, any closing thoughts or, or concerns or anything else? I mean, you can get the end of scarcity right on your website. Oh yeah, it's it's everywhere. You can yeah. get it on Amazon. You can okay. get it Amazon, at yeah. Apple Books. You know, Barnes and Noble everywhere. And yeah. Audible. And coming and Audible soon? is coming very soon. Okay. And even next year there'll be a children's cartoon version. Oh, beautiful, yeah. awesome. So well, the one thing I will say mm-hmm. is that the more that we start focusing on these positive solutions. Um, it'll it re-triggers that brain chemistry. And um, so what we've been through in the past couple of years, we've sort of triggered that re- reptilian brain and we've been stuck in the fear. And there's so much fear out there. But as we continue to focus on these solutions, that neocortex starts to get 
um, tr- operating back online and we catch how possible and not only how possible, but I even say unstoppable. Mm. And so the future is so bright the more that we come together. Appreciate your time. Thanks for listening, oh, everybody. Thank you so much.